Good to be back with the church family. It really is. Uh, this evening, we're going to continue our studies in 2 Kings. And I've entitled this section as Ahaz. We're still with Ahaz. Ahaz's deluded reasoning and worship. And that's going to be the conclusion, really, but you'll find out why I titled it that way. It's kind of interesting. I do think there's a difference between faulty reasoning and deluded reasoning. I mean, both of them are wrong. Both of them are fallacious. But faulty reasoning is having the wrong arguments for a conclusion that you have. Deluded reasoning is having arguments that are delusional, that don't make sense, that aren't a part of reality. And, and oftentimes we see in the Bible, especially in Romans chapter 1, it talks about such delusion of the mind and of the heart because of sin. And that would certainly be Ahaz's case here. We talked a little bit about Ahaz before because the last time we met, King Ahaz is the background for the prophecy in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. And that's the one that we hear about uh, every Christmas. It's a fantastic prophecy, and I'll read it here. It says, therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. Well, who's the you there? The Lord will give you a sign. The you there is Ahaz. There is the, the, the context of how that prophecy came to be. And then there's the double fulfillment, the ultimate fulfillment of the prophecy towards the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, I'm not going to go back into that, but we spent the entire uh, Wednesday, the last time we met, going over that. And I, I was so excited because this is really the background. Well, let me just go through a review, and then we'll have a word of prayer, and then we'll begin in 2 Kings chapter 16, beginning in verse 6, and we're going to be looking at 2 Chronicles. There are some uh, details in 2 Chronicles that will add to this. Well, Ahaz, if you remember, he was the son of Jotham, and Jotham was a good king, and when he died, Ahaz became the king, and of course, we always find out in the book of Kings that the next king, even though the first one was good, the next king does evil, and he did do evil. It really egregious sins. First of all, it says that he followed the kings of Israel. Now, let me say that again. Not the kings of Judah, but with the divided kingdom, the kings of Israel. You know, the very ones that started pagan worship with the golden calf? He's following them. Then we find out that he was also involved in offering children to the fire, to the god Melech in the Valley of Hinnom. And so when you hear about the Valley of Hinnom or you go over to Israel and you see the Valley of Hinnom, which is... It's not a dump anymore, but it used to be a dump where the fire was continuously going and the worms never died. Jesus used it as an analogy, a picture of what hell is, everlasting punishment. But it began with the sacrifice of children to the god Melech. This is how you appeased him. You sacrificed your children. Well, he not only did that, but he sacrificed to other gods at high places. And then God allowed the kings of the other nations to come against him. Come against Judah and Jerusalem. The only thing is, is that God loves Jerusalem and Judah. And for the sake of Jerusalem and David, he would not let these kings destroy Jerusalem and Judah, and even Ahaz at that time. King Ahaz was very concerned, very anxious, and wondering what to do. And God sent Isaiah, the prophet, to him and said, Do not be 
anxious. Trust in me. I am going to take care of those two nations. God allowed them to come in, and God's going to take them out. And he said, ask a sign, and I'll get, ask any sign, and I'll do that sign just to show you that I am God, not these other gods that you're worshiping, and that I control all things. Well, Ahaz missed his opportunity. He, he, he didn't give a sign. So God said, all right, I'll give you a sign. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now, for the contextual fulfillment, obviously, this was a picture of natural birth of a woman who had never been with a man and then is married and then has a child. It's it's not supernaturally fulfilled here. It can't be. But it was supernaturally fulfilled with Mary. Mary was a virgin, never knew a man, and she was found to be with child when the Holy Spirit overshadowed her. Well, with Ahaz, it was going to be someone in his kingdom, maybe Isaiah's wife, perhaps his second wife, or a woman that was known to Ahaz. She was going to give birth to a son and before that son was old enough to recognize between good and evil, these two kings, Rezin and Pekah, were going to be defeated. And by the way, what's the idea with Emmanuel? Emmanuel means God with us, and God fulfilling that prophecy said, I am going to be with you. I'm going to be with Judah, and I'm going to accomplish this fulfillment. Well... Then we come to the New Testament, and Matthew quotes this at the birth of Jesus Christ. And it's very clear in the book of Matthew that it is a supernatural birth, that the virgin birth is exactly the technical word for virgin, having never been with a man, and it's confirmed several times in Matthew and even in Luke. And it is to identify the Messiah, who is Jesus the Son of God, God the Son, Emmanuel, God with us, who will save us from our sins. So that is the background for where we're at. Well, what's going to happen now is instead of trusting the Lord with all of this, he trusts Tiglath-Pileser, the king of Assyria. Assyria is going to take the northern kingdom into captivity soon. Not the southern kingdom, but the northern kingdom. So he's allying with them. And then what we find out is that he is going to do some incredibly evil things. He is going to remodel the altar in Jerusalem after the altar of pagan gods. Kind of reminds us a little bit of the Antichrist. And we're going to see of his grievous sin. He just really begins evil and ends even more evil. I should have made another category. Well, with that, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Lord, we see these events in the Old Testament, and they are for our example, they are for warning, and they also are for encouraging us to follow you with our whole heart, Lord. And I pray that's exactly what we do, Lord, as a result of studying this passage, that we, Lord, will, will serve you and you only, that we won't put our trust in things or in money or in people, but only in you. So, Father, would you teach us these very, very important lessons, lessons that we've heard before, but obviously, Lord, we need to hear them again. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so if you would, if you're not already there, turn to 2 Kings chapter 16, and we're going to begin with verse 6.
All right, so just quickly, I want to do the chronology of the kings. This is a way for us to keep in our own mind who's who. Well, right now, the ones that are going to be brought up are Ahaz. He's from the southern kingdom. And the very end, when he dies, the conclusion of this chapter, Hezekiah, the famous Hezekiah, his son will become the king. We're going to see the removal of Rezin, the one king that was against Judah, but Pekah is still there. Pekah is the northern kingdom. So, so these are the ones that are still involved. All right, so let's pick it up then in verse 6. In fact, I'll read verses 6 through 9, and then we'll work our way through it. It begins, at that time, Rezin, king of Aram, recovered Elath for Aram and cleared the Judeans out of Elath entirely. And the Arameans came to Elath and have lived there to this day. So Ahaz sent messengers to Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, saying, I am your servant and your son, Come up and deliver me from the hand of the king of Aram and from the hand of the king of Israel. Now, the king of Israel is, as we just mentioned, Pekah, okay, the northern and the southern kingdom because it's a divided kingdom. Well, then we read verse 8. Uh, Ahaz took silver and gold that was found in the house of the Lord and in the treasuries of the king's house and sent a present to the king of Assyria. So the king of Assyria listened to him. And I want to stop there. All right, so in verse 6, um, it's part of the context before that we found out that Rezin, the king of Aram, and Pekah had joined together to defeat Ahaz. One of the reasons they wanted to get rid of him was because he was, he being Ahaz, was trying to make an alliance with Tiglath. And they didn't like the Assyrians. I don't know that they had any idea that the Assyrians were going to take them into any captivity uh, anytime soon, but they, they didn't like that, and they were against Ahaz. And it says that at that time, Rezin recovered Elath. Elath was one of those places where uh, at one point the northern kingdom had it, then the southern kingdom had it. And what we find out, um, the last time we read about this was in 2 Kings 14. Now, if you remember Azariah, who's also Uzziah, he occupied Elath and he built it up. That was one of the great exploits that he did. Well, guess what? It's, it was only for a short time, and now the Arameans have taken it over. And, of course, at the writing of 2 Kings not to this day, our day, but to the writing of 2 Kings, the Arameans still occupied it. And so they kind of took back that boundary city. And it shows you that this was a real problem. And we're not only seeing a problem from them, but we're going to see that there was a problem from the Philistines as well. So Judah was starting to get hammered. And... God had given Ahaz the prophecy, but he did not turn to God. He turned to the power. You know, we've seen this in history where someone will try to play the politics. And whoever's going to win, that's going to be the person they serve. But they have to say who they're going to serve beforehand. And if they get it wrong, then they're in trouble with the new person who's in charge. Well, verse 7 says... So Ahaz sent messengers to Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, saying, I am your servant and your son. Now, this is, this is a king of Judah. This is a king of David's kingdom. And he's giving himself completely to this pagan king rather than trusting in the Lord. He says, come up and deliver me from the hand of the king of Aram and from the king of Israel, who are rising up against me. So this was interesting. He was going to see if, if he gives him this gold and he becomes his vassal, 
meaning he becomes his servant where he pays a tribute, he pays money, that he'll come and he'll fight for him. Um, and, and it's going to be some interesting, um, some interesting events here coming up. Now, what we're also going to see, and this is going to be from Second Chronicles. So if you would go to Second Chronicles, Chapter 28. In Second Chronicles, it's, it's very much the same thing, but there's a little bit more detail. And beginning with verse 16, this is where this comes in. At that time, King Ahaz sent to the kings of Assyria for help. For again, the Edomites had come and attacked Judah and carried away captives. So we see it's not just Rezin and it's not just Pekah, but now it's the Edomites coming in from the south. And then look at verse 18. The Philistines also had invaded the cities of the lowland of the Negev of Judah and had taken Beth Shemesh, Ijalon, Gederoth, and Soko with its villages, Timnah with its villages, and Gimzo with its villages, and they settled there. Now, uh, we're, we're seeing that he needs help, but he should have gone to the help of the Lord. First of all, let's look at Elath here. If you remember, Elath is uh, below the Dead Sea, and it's in the southern part. Um, so this is where Rezin took that. And then Beth Shemesh, uh, this is up towards Galilee. And so we see the Philistines coming in from the west, the Edomites the south, Rezin is there, and of course Pekah will take whatever he can take. Zoom in a little bit there to Beth Shemesh. So what's cool about going over to Israel is that every time there's a place mentioned in Kings. I either remember that I was there or I go back to my itinerary and my pictures and say, was I there? Well, unfortunately, I wasn't at Beth Shemesh, but I was at various other places, and it's, it's so cool to be able to put this together. Now, as we, we want to go back to 2 Kings, uh, we're, we're going to go back and forth. That's just how it is. So he takes the silver and the gold from the treasury of the house of the Lord and the king's house. So he's taking money from the Lord because he's put his trust in Tiglath. Another thing we do really realize is by this time, both Jotham, his father, and Ahaz, they have been able to accumulate some wealth. Um, wealth gets accumulated by some of these kings and then somehow or other a king comes in and steals it or they give it away when they want to make an alliance. We did see that during the reign of Amaziah, um, much of it was removed. So from the time of uh, uh, Amaziah until now, he had accumulated and sadly he's giving that money to Tiglath. And then what's very interesting in 2 Kings verse 9 it says, so the king of Assyria listened to him. It is interesting on the one hand because such a big power was now going to listen. But I think the author put it in there because he's not going to listen to them very much longer. And this isn't going to be a help. Ahaz is going to be sorry that he did this. But watch what happens. So the king of Assyria listened to him. That's Tiglath. And the king of Assyria went up against Damascus, which is in Aram, which Rezin is the king, and he captured it, the capital city. And he carried the people of it away into exile to Ker, and he put Rezin to death, just as God foretold in that prophecy to Ahaz from Isaiah. Now, what you also should find interesting at this time is what is common for kings to do, but what is preeminently 
something of Tiglath is notice it says he carried the people away into exile. This is what they do. This is what he does. And guess what happens when he comes against the northern kingdom? What do you think he's going to do? He's going to take them away into exile. But he does put resin to death. So that's one of the kings that was bothering Judah. Um, and God fulfills, in part, that prophecy that he was going to take care of them. Now, at this point, it, it's one, one would say, well, why is all this happening? Um, wh you know, why are these kings coming against uh, Ahaz? Well, it's the same answer because of his unfaithfulness. Now, you don't, have, well, yeah, I am going to have you turn there. So go to 2 Chronicles 28, verses 19 through 21. Because here's a little piece of the puzzle that's going to put this together. 2 Chronicles 28, verse 19 says, for the Lord humbled Judah because of Ahaz, king of Israel. For he had brought about a lack of restraint in Judah and was very unfaithful to the Lord. Now, this is going to be interesting because, again, Ahaz is putting his faith in Tiglath. But he should be putting his faith in the Lord because the Lord is allowing this punishment to come on him, to get his attention, to get him back to the Lord. And he should be putting his trust in the Lord, repenting. And then notice what it says. So Tiglath, even though he listened in the beginning, even though he went and took Damascus and he killed Rezin, you kind of see he was in it for himself, not to help Judah out. Listen to what it says, verse 20. So Tiglath, Pilneser, king of Assyria, came against him, against who? Ahaz, and afflicted him instead of strengthening him. So he's not really on his side, and he doesn't want to strengthen him. It says, although Ahaz took a portion out of the house of the Lord and out of the palace of the king and of the princes and gave it to the king of Assyria, it did not help him. He's putting his trust in the wrong one and in the wrong thing. It's not going to help him anyway. And so this is kind of the author letting us know how this is going to end. Now, there's something that just is very bizarre here. Ahaz is going to see the altar of the gods of Damascus and like it, and he's going to go back to Jerusalem and remodel the altar at the temple. You know, just when you think you've seen and heard it all in the book of Kings, you find out that you have not seen it all. So this is 2 Kings 16, and look at verse 10 and 11. It says, now King Ahaz went to Damascus to meet Tiglath-Pileser. Probably to say, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you for getting rid of Rezin. And he saw the altar which was at Damascus. Now it doesn't say anything about what kind of altar it was, but Second Chronicles will. It says, and King Ahaz sent to Uriah the priest the pattern or the sketch of the altar and its model according to all its workmanship. Verse 11, so Uriah the priest built an altar according to all that King Ahaz had sent from Damascus. Thus Uriah the priest made it before the coming of King Ahaz from Damascus. So this plan is already going and what you find out is that this priest is involved. And that's the way it happens at times. When you see the sinfulness of leadership, it trickles down. Now, that doesn't mean that you can't have a good leader and sin underneath you. But usually a good leader will deal with the sin underneath him or sin in his own life. But here we have evil kings, evil priests. And by the way, they've been sacrificing their children to Melech. And by the way, 
They've been sacrificing to foreign gods on high places. So you can imagine if there was a priest in there who was godly, he might have been put to death. He might have been yousted or he might have said, that's it, I will not allow you to desecrate the temple. And But anyway, this Uriah the priest should have never gone along with this, but he does. He is going to do that. Now, even though we're just looking at altars, I don't know, maybe they were cool altars. Maybe they were made with really neat wood, woodworking, and it wasn't necessarily dedicated to false gods, except when we go to Second Chronicles. I'd like you to go Second Chronicles again, or just listen. In 2 Chronicles 28, verse 23, and this is important. It says, for he sacrificed to the gods of Damascus, which had defeated him. Talk about deluded reasoning here. And said, because the gods of the kings of Aram helped me, I will sacrifice to them that they may help me. So he's in Damascus. He sees the altar. What altars are there? They have to be the altars to the gods of Damascus. And then the last phrase says, but they became the downfall of him and all Israel. Now, sin is sin. And when we see sin in the book of 1 Kings and 2 Kings, all sin is sin. But the one sin that God held over Israel's hand was the sin of idolatry. You cannot worship other gods. You can worship me. Yes, you can even fail at times. You can repent. You can come back to me. I will restore you, but you cannot worship other gods. And here he is. He's going to make these altars of the gods of Damascus, and he's going to worship them. Uriah, the priest, he, he's a go-getter. He has these things completed before Ahaz comes back. And I bet Ahaz was so pleased, and I bet Uriah thought he was really moving up in the rung of politics and religion, but not with God. He was doing evil in the sight of God. Going back to 2 Kings, we see verses 12 and 13. What does Ahaz do? Well, when you have new pieces of furniture for the tabernacle, you have to dedicate them. So he dedicates these new altars, these altars that are made after the gods of Damascus altars. Look at verses 12 and 13. When the king came from Damascus, the king saw the altar. Then the king approached the altar and went up to it. This is a solemn moment. We're watching this pious man here. Verse 13, and he burned his burnt offerings and his meal offering and poured his drink offering and sprinkled the blood of his peace offerings on the altar. Which altar do you think? Not the bronze altar. We're going to talk about the bronze altar in just a moment on this new altar. And by the way, this was the same thing that Solomon did when Solomon put all these things together for the temple and he dedicated it to the Lord. The Lord accepted those things from Solomon because the Shekinah glory came into the Holy of Holies. That's not going to happen here. But he's doing it as I'm doing it just like all the other kings, all the other kings that were godly. By the way, Jeroboam did the same thing with the golden calf. You know, it just seems to me if you're going to be evil, be evil. But, if, but, it, but it, you, you can't act like you're good and still do evil. I mean, you get the idea of what, what God means when he says, I wish you were either hot or cold, but because you're lukewarm, I will vomit you out of my mouth. You, you understand it. It's just horrible here. So he's dedicating this. Now, this is interesting. I was reading a commentary, a great commentary, and they had this to say. What a parody of piety. He who knew nothing of genuine godliness would feign his devotion to God 
and that via an alien altar. Uh, it's an interesting comment, but I'm not sure I agree with it. I don't think he is bringing this altar in to worship Yahweh. Because what did verse 23 say in 2 Chronicles? It says, and he sacrificed to the gods of Damascus. And it's not even the gods of Tiglath, the Assyrian. It's of the Arameans where King Rezin was the king, who is now dead because Tiglath killed him. This is diluted reasoning here, and it's also diluted worship. Now, as we're thinking about this, I, I would say that because of verse 23, he's worshiping pagan gods in Jerusalem now, where they worship Yahweh at. And just in doing a little bit of, little bit of research, uh, one of the gods, the chief god of Damascus was Rhymer. There's no rhyme or reason why he should worship him, Rhymer. And he was a uh, god who later became what the Romans called Jupiter, the Jupiter, that god. Um, so this was one of the gods that he is now worshiping. I believe he's worshiping, and there are other commentaries that say the same thing, that my word, this guy is worshiping false gods there in Jerusalem at the altar. And to make matters worse, he decides to do a renovation. He thought the altar was good. Let's just renovate the whole thing now. So in verse 14, now comes the bronze altar. Verse 14 says, the bronze altar which was before the Lord, he brought from the front of the house, from between his altar and the house of the Lord, and he put it on the north side of his altar. Now, I mean, this is a sermon all in itself, by the way. So this is what the bronze altar means. So you come into the tent, the courtyard, you haven't even approached the Holy of Holies yet. This is where the daily sacrifices are done. So this is the first thing you see when you come into the courtyard. It's very interesting. Someone said that the bronze altar reminds us of the Lord Jesus Christ, who said, no one comes to the Father but through me. So they first have to come in through a sacrifice before they can even approach the holy place and the holy of holies. Of course, then the priest on the day of Yom Kippur goes into the holy of holies and applies the blood to the mercy seat. But someone said, this is like the Lord Jesus Christ who no one can come to the Father but through me. And now he's taking that bronze altar and moving it away. He's going to keep it around, but he's now going to move his altar in the primary place the altar that was made after the gods of Damascus, the altar, which I believe and many others believe that he was sacrificing to these gods. Let's read on a little bit more, verses 15 and 16. Then the king commanded Uriah the priest, saying, upon the great altar... We've moved out the bronze altar, the one that God specifically told Israel that it had to be this, uh, the instructions because it has to be done in this way, because I believe it's a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ, the way he has set that all up. But now we're removing that, and now Ahaz has the great altar. It says, so upon the great altar, burn the morning burnt offering and the evening meal offering and the king's burnt offering and his meal offering with the burnt offering of all the people of the land and their meal offering and their drink offerings and sprinkle on it all the blood of the burnt offering and all the blood of the sacrifice. It now has become the daily place of sacrifice. Not only did he dedicate it, but now it's going to replace the bronze. But I suppose at this 
point, he's trying to be somewhat of a politician and maybe appease those who are still orthodox in their worship of Yahweh. And the next sentence says, but the bronze altar shall be for me to inquire by. So he's going to keep it around. And when he needs to know God's will, he's going to go and inquire. Again, we have a little bit of a problem here. He's not inquiring of God, Yahweh. Because if you want to inquire of God at this time, who do you consult? The prophets. The prophets. Isaiah, who gave him a sign. You consult the prophets to find God's word because God reveals himself to the prophets and only to the prophets. This whole idea of inquiry reminds you of pagan divination. We're going to get some sort of mystical revelation of which the gods of Damascus, Rhymer, is going to direct us. So now I, I think it's safe to say that he's taken the bronze altar from its primary position, has a lesser position, and even that is going to be used in some sort of pagan ritual. Well, he's still not done. He is not done. This would be a good time for us to hear some thunder right here. And that has happened. That has actually happened two times since I've been here uh, while I was preaching. Um, I, I'm, it has nothing to do with me. Maybe, yeah, unless God was trying to strike, strike me for something I said that wasn't biblical. But uh, this would be a good time for that because the, the wrath of God is being built up against Ahaz. But he is not done. He's not done with the, the renovations. Verse 16, so Uriah the priest, the goody two-shoes, who's not very good, did according to all that King Ahaz command. Verse 17, then King Ahaz cut off the borders of the stands and removed the labor from them. Now he's going after other pieces of furniture. And he's going after the labor. Do you remember we discussed these things in detail when we were talking about Solomon's temple? Uh, he's also going to talk about the sea. Uh, we'll, des we'll describe what that is in just a moment. But the labor holds water and the sea holds water. And I don't know that you can see right there. Not bad, though. That's, that's really good with the new uh, projector and all that. But there to the left, it says labor and bases. That's what he's cutting up. I'll zoom in a little bit there. It's the, the little ones with water. Now, there's a big one with, with water, and, and we'll discuss that in just a moment. But he's starting to cut these up. I suppose he's thinking, well, maybe we need to give more tribute to Tiglath. And I want him to see that we're renovating place of worship and the temple to be more acceptable to culture and the world and pagan kings. And then it says, and he also took down the sea from the bronze oxen, which were under it, and put it on a pavement of stone. Now, all of this was for ceremonial cleansing. The little ones were on wheels so that the priest could do that. And then, of course, this is where the main water was received from was this molten sea, this big bowl, if you would, this large basin. And when we went through 1 Kings chapter 7, it said that this basin was so large that it was seven feet high and its circumference was 45 feet. That's a lot of water. That's, that's pretty big. Well, he removes it from them. And they were, they, were, they were placed on these oxen. And all of this had typologies. And all of this had meaning. But he is now defacing everything. Furthermore, what we're going to find out in verse 18 is he's totally going to make it acceptable to any pagan king who comes. And in verse 18, it says, The covered way... You know, that would be like a covered entrance. 
for the Sabbath, which they had built in the house, and the outer entry of the king he removed from the house of the Lord because of the king of Assyria. So in other words, what was the entry? It was the entry from the king's house to the temple because he was supposed to love the Lord. He was supposed to have a heart after the Lord, just like David. And this is what you would do. This is the first thing you want to set up. He's removing it because Tiglath wasn't a king of Judah, wasn't a king of the northern kingdom, and certainly didn't have a heart after God. And so it's going to be acceptable now. But this is the idea of the way in which you're making church acceptable to the world. We saw this happen years ago with a church that sent out surveys to the average Joe, the unchurched Joe. Now, from a worldly point of view, this might seem like a good thing. And it said on there, well, what do you, what do you want in a church service? Well, what do you think the world is going to say? Well, we want less talk about sin. We don't want to come and feel guilty. Okay, marked it down. But we want entertainment, lots of entertainment. We want church to be entertaining. And they went through the list, and so this church began to tailor their church according to what culture and the world wanted. You could understand if one church did it, but all of a sudden, it became a movement in Christianity. It's safe to say that it, if you were to look at it today, you would say that it was a failed methodology because that, that's, not, that's not how you save people. That's how, not how you minister to people. Okay? But this is what Ahaz was doing. He was making worship of Yahweh, which he wasn't even worshiping Yahweh. He was making it acceptable to the pagan world. And that's not what we do as a church. That's not what they were supposed to do as kings of the Davidic kingdom, people and men that should be men after God's own heart. And so he didn't want to offend Tiglath. Well, we're not done. We're not done. I'd like you to turn now to Second Chronicles chapter 28. 2 Chronicles chapter 28, because this is going to fill in some more. Verses 24 and 25. So it, 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 you would think it was a revival. The world would call this a revival. The ecumenical movement would call this a revival. Verse 24, moreover, when Ahaz gathered together the utensils of the house of God, he cut the utensils of the house of God in pieces. We know about the labors, but here it could be referring to other utensils like the, like the lamps and things like that. He closed the doors of the house of the Lord and made altars for himself in every corner of Jerusalem. Now, it's not saying that he's made altars of himself saying that he made altars for himself, but we are going to see, we, will, we won't see it, I don't believe we'll be here, but in the tribulation, the Antichrist will be making altars of himself, but he will be renovating Jerusalem. And then it says, in every city of Judah, in every city of Judah, he made high places to burn incense to other gods and provoke the Lord, the God of his fathers, to anger. So when you see a conclusion like that, he wasn't worshiping God while he was worshiping on that altar to the gods of Damascus. He wasn't trying to appease God. He was trying to appease the man that he was trusting in, but that man was not in it to strengthen Ahaz. Well, the conclusion then in verses 19 and 20. 
And it says, now the rest of the acts of Ahaz, which he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Judah? And so I'll just say it again. This was the usual phrase given to legal court records concerning the kings. Why wouldn't this mean the Chronicles that we just referred to? Because there's numerous times when it says that, and there's no nothing in Chronicles about the king. So it's referring to, and this is decidedly um, really the, the uh, conservative biblical scholarly view that it's, it's the records. So this is a records of the king. So go and refer to those if you could. And then it says that he died, verse 20. And Ahaz slept with his fathers and was buried with his fathers in the city of David. And his son Hezekiah reigned in his place. Now, remember how we said that all kings get buried. All kings get buried with their fathers. But not all kings get buried with the other kings. Well, what do we say about this? I, I Usually when I see... A verse like this, I say, yeah, not so much. But we don't know for sure unless we were to go one more time, and you don't have to, to Second Chronicles 28, verse 27. And it says, and this is what I appreciate, because you would be left wondering, was he buried with the kings? Was he honored? So Ahaz slept with his fathers, and they buried him in the city in Jerusalem. For they did not bring him into the tombs of the kings of Israel. And Hezekiah, his son, reigned in his place. So even really Israel, even Judah, uh, recognized how evil he was. It wasn't, wasn't well, the vote is still out. It was is unanimous. Now, what I'd like to just do in just the remaining moments is give a little application, two of them. I want to talk about Ahaz's deluded reasoning. And I want to talk about Ahaz's deluded worship. First of all, deluded reasoning. So I made a little difference between faulty reasoning and a deluded reasoning. So faulty reasoning is you're not giving good arguments to your conclusion. Okay? Um, your conclusion might be right but your argument isn't any good. Or you could be giving good arguments, but your conclusion isn't right. Those are faulty, not deluded. A deluded argument or a deluded reasoning is reaching out into no man's land, reaching out into the world of imagination, reaching out into things that aren't even close to reality, a delusion. And that's what we have here. And the, well, the reason I say this is because he began to worship the gods of Damascus. There almost is no reason in the world why he should have done that. First of all, these were the gods of the king of Aram, Rezin, who was coming against him. Yes, he caused a little destruction, but he didn't defeat Judah. He didn't kill Ahaz, and he ended up getting killed by the king of Assyria. Well, what's so great about it? Rezin's God. Rezin's God didn't even save Rezin. And here's Ahaz. Oh, we want to worship the gods of Damascus. You know, maybe it was that he also looked and he saw, wow, this is really cool. This is new. This is novel. Let's do what's novel because novel is what's spiritual. No, it's not. Now, I'm not saying there's nothing wrong, there's anything wrong with new, but I'm also saying that there's nothing wrong with old, and it depends on what category you're talking about. But he may have brought it in for that reason, but it was like, man, that's ridiculous. Why would you worship those gods? I mean, if anything, according to reason, you should have worshiped Tiglath's gods, but his gods are not even mentioned. But really, when you say, why wouldn't Ahaz worship Yahweh in the first place? Who, number one, he was with Judah, Emmanuel. Going to be a child born in your day, Ahaz. And giving the reference of Emmanuel, God is with you. God is with Judah. These two kings are not going to destroy Judah. 
Why wouldn't he go with him? This is the God who said, I'm going to destroy both of them. They are smoldering embers. They had a wrath of fire. But what happens when you put a fire out? Well, you have to watch it and a little smoke comes up. That's what they were to God. They were just smoldering embers. They were in a fire. Don't you worry about them. And by the way, this is the God, Yahweh is the God who is controlling all of these nations. Assyria, Aram, Edom, the Philistines, they either can or cannot go after Judah depending on the Lord's will and the Lord's sovereignty. And if the Lord wants to get Judah's attention, if they're sinning, he's going to send that. But he's already told them in various places in the Old Testament, this is what I'm going to do. Here's the instructions. And then finally, let's be honest, God, Yahweh, is the only true God. Why would you want to worship a God who is not real? That is deluded. That is delusional. And Isaiah talks about this delusion when he says, you take a tree and you carve the tree into an idol and then you take the chips from that tree and you go make supper from those chips and you bow down and worship to that idol. That is delusional. And we find that also in Romans chapter 1, where they exchange the glory of the incorruptible God for, the, for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. And it says they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And it says, for this reason, God gave them over to the lust of their heart, to degrading passions, and even uh, the fact that he gave them over to foolish hearts and futile minds in their thinking. Professing to be wise, they became fools. This is an illustration of that. Ahaz professed to be wise, but he was a fool. Well, let me now talk about deluded worship. It goes hand in hand with this. Why is this deluded worship? Because it's deluded, it's delusional to think you can worship two gods. To think you can have pagan worship and the worship of Yahweh, especially when Yahweh said, it just isn't going to happen. This isn't going to happen. And when you again, when you look at the highlighted sin in the book of Kings, it is idolatry. And here he is. I don't even think he's doing mixture. I think he's just worshiping false gods. He was not like David who followed the Lord with all his heart. So we, we define what that meant, that David went after the Lord with all his heart, followed him and him alone. That's what they were to do. That's what we are to do. Jesus said, no man can serve two masters. Or you will hate the one and love the other or vice versa. Now, let me make it practical. Let's bring this into the church. Now, it is true that over time, styles of worship change. Some understandable, some unacceptable. For instance, we, the, the, the hymns that we so dearly love today were at one time new and novel with both the words and also the music. It was, it was music that was socially acceptable at that time. Well, the hymns that we sing today are great and wonderful, and I don't want to give them up. And I know there's a whole host of people here that don't want to give them up either, and I don't think we have to. This, they weren't the hymns that the early church sang. So there is an ebb and flow in styles and cultures, and even in certain people's groups, um, there, there is different styles. And some of that, we can't, have to, we can't say, well, because it's different from exactly what we do, it's wrong. We can't say that. However, we can say that there are some things that should never change. We should never try to make our services or our style or our worship acceptable to the world. Now, whether it's acceptable to the world or not, I, I don't even, I don't even think I've ever asked that question. 
I just know that this is what the scriptures talk about. I, I know this is what we are to do. Uh, I know we do preach the Bible. I know we should preach against sin. I don't like to call what we have entertainment. What I like to call it is ministry. The music that we have in this church is ministry. What does that mean? It affects your spiritual life. It doesn't make you want to get up and dance. And so there are some things that should never change, especially because we don't want to offend someone. In fact, you could go to Corinthians. We won't go to that. But Corinthians would say they come into a house of God and they see the people worshiping uh, the Lord and they become convicted. And when they become convicted, it's a chance that they might repent and come to Christ. But there's certain things that must never change. They must never change, like the preaching of the word of God. And we go back to the Reformation, and the Reformation was the center of worship was the preaching of the word, not to highlight or exalt the minister, but to exalt the God of the Bible. But if you don't preach the Bible, then you're not exalting the God of the Bible. You're exalting your imagination or the world's imagination. So we must never change the preaching of the word of God. And, 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 and I'm, I'm not saying that music and the other things aren't a part of worship. It's all worship. But it's the Bible that's inspired by God. We must never change what we believe about salvation, that salvation is by faith alone and Christ alone. And this is why I will not hold hands with an ecumenical group. Because what, what, I guess I'd have to compromise. Well, I guess you can do works too and be saved. If I was with an ecumenical group, knowing myself, sooner or later, I would be witnessing to them. Maybe even arguing with them, and maybe even in the flesh, a heated argument. But you know what? That's one thing worth dying for. Salvation is by faith alone and Christ alone and not adding works to it. Also, you cannot change standing on the doctrines of the word to merely please people. And that includes marriage, beloved. That includes marriage, and there have been times when some very disappointed people have left my office because I will stick to what the Bible says about marriage. Also, too, I would say we must stand on certain instructions of how to conduct ourselves in the church or as the church in the scriptures. I'm thinking of a book like 1 Timothy we'll talk about how to conduct yourselves in the church. And we're going to begin 1 Timothy this Sunday. But you cannot change the focus of worship. The focus of worship is the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not personal preference. Now, is there room for personal preference? Yes. Um, we have blue chairs. Now, I wasn't here when they decided that, okay? I was here when we had blue carpet. But you know, there, it wasn't a problem. <laughs> I'm so glad. Nobody was in, went outside and, and started a fist fight or anything. That, that just shows the godly decorum here, and, and I appreciate that. But, but you will have certain preferences and certain styles. Okay, so that is acceptable, but you... you how you worship and who you worship, that can never change. Otherwise, you will end up like Ahaz. I'll conclude with this. Ahaz followed the wicked example of the kings of Israel and even took them to a new low. He was a descendant of David and therefore should have loved the Lord with all his heart been a man after God's own heart, should have trusted God and obeyed the word of God. Consciously or unconsciously, each of us follows something or someone. 
But we must make sure that it is not the example of Ahaz, who was a failure in his walk, failure in his warfare, failure in his worship. We must make sure that we are standing and focused on the worship of the Lord Jesus Christ and his word for every area of life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the lessons learned. And there are many, many more from this passage. But Father, give us this to take home in our hearts because these will be tested, Father. They have been tested. They will be tested again. They will be tested, Lord, with sometimes people coming in and wanting to see uh, uh, the, the church become more worldly because the world does it. Uh, Father, we, uh, people that perhaps don't even know the Lord will come in and, and there will be pressure to accept them and we want the numbers to be good, but we don't want the numbers to be that good. Lord, we want the spiritual life to be the best and Father, whatever people you bring in here because they want to grow and worship the Lord, Lord, we say hallelujah and they are welcome. Father, we pray now that as you send us on our way that we will indeed stand on those things that should not change and will give you all the glory and the praise. In Jesus' name, amen.